Well, I want to invite you this morning. I'm going to do uh, something a little different for me. And that I want to open up with a little allegory, a, a little story that's not true per se, but I want to ask you and invite you to use your imagination for a moment. Right? And I'm not making any political statements here. I'm not having any overtures. It's just a story to help you to kind of get in the right frame of reference. I want you to think about and imagine that there's a high profile case going on currently in our society and it's hitting the news, news cycles of late. And there's a very controversial leader that's emerging in our society and he's saying and doing some pretty amazing things. And uh, he's taking on corruption in our government at the highest levels, corruption that we didn't even know existed. And so obviously, an individual that's doing this, if this kind of corruption is occurring, it's not setting well with the powers of be in Washington. There's fear in the halls of power. And the current Chief Justice, the Honorable John G. Roberts, hurriedly decides in the midst of all of this to convene the Supreme Court, the other eight members of the court, and he invites them to come to the Supreme Court at midnight. Just calls him and says, you got to get over here. Rather weird requests indeed. And when they get there, they assemble and they put on their robes. They go into the courtroom and then the doors are closed, shut and locked. The media is left outside. Just a few of the uh, people, the clerks of the court, they're there to help with the proceeding that evening. Now, Chief Justice Roberts had just bribed an individual to go after this person who was causing all of this ruckus, all of this controversy, and bribe them so that they could actually bring them in under arrest and bring them before this assembly of the court. And in bringing them in, there's no statement of charges against the individual that's made, no arraignment, no grand jury, nothing. They just proceed to turn this into a kangaroo court of sorts, where the ju highest judicial system of our land now becomes the prosecutor. In essence, they're becoming judge, jury, and executioner on this night. Now the accused stands very calm, cool, and collected, very strong, and his responses make it clear that these proceedings go way beyond the pale of anything ever accepted in our rich history of jurisprudence in our nation. Having been embarrassed and exposed by the calm responses of this individual, one of the clerks actually hauls off and slaps this guy for embarrassing the Chief Justice Roberts. It's really unprecedented, something he hasn't done before. Even though now the judge has lost face, he only intensifies his pursuit, so he brings in two witnesses. And now these two witnesses can't even get their story straight. It's unbelievable. And then if you really listen to what they're saying, there's nothing that they're charging, nothing that they're testifying to that actually shows any wrongdoing whatsoever. And in spite of this, the justice knows that they're at a tipping point and he his, and his fellow judges have already predetermined what they want to do. They believe they have to get rid of this dangerous leader. They want him dead. And they're abusing the power that they have as the Supreme Court of the land to get this done. Sounds pretty preposterous, doesn't it? Well, I share that with you because we don't understand Jewish jurisprudence. But 
It's just as crazy what happened at the trial of Jesus as what I just said to you in this little allegory. That's the situation Jesus found himself in. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the response of Jesus. What about the response of Jesus makes us want to follow him, makes us draw closer to him? And we're going to be doing that by looking at this unjust trial. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to John 18, and we're going to begin in verse 12. Um, if not, they're in your bulletin, and you can read along with me. I'm just going to read the first, two ver or first three verses, verses 12 through 14. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. All right, let, let me stop there just for a minute, and uh, let's first look at some of the characters who are going to be in this story, in this plot. Annas, who's referred to here, was originally the high priest of Israel. And, and normally, this most exalted position, you had the king and the high priest as the two most powerful positions in all of Israel. Well, the Roman government had now come in, so there was a puppet king, and then there was the high priest. And Annas was the high priest, and it was a lifetime appointment normally, but this guy had become so powerful and so wealthy and so corrupt, mind you, that the Roman government actually removed him, but not completely, all right? And he's always referred to as the high priest. He'll continue to have that title even though he didn't have the office, much in the same way as we call our former presidents Mr. President. They retained that title for a lifetime. So Annas, the former high priest, called high priest, was far from retired, though. The best way to think about him is that what he had going on was a mafia, and he was the mob boss. And so he had worked that succeeding him, there were five more high priests, which shows you just this kind of turnover wasn't supposed to happen, but he was pulling the puppet strings behind the scenes. Those all of them were members of the family. Four of them were his sons, and Caiaphas was his son-in-law. And so, if you will, think of Annas as the godfather of this mafia enterprise. And in verse 14, we see that Caiaphas, the current high priest, it says, was the one who advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for all the people. Now, what John is referring to, and perhaps you were with us the Sunday we talked about this, is way back in John chapter 11, at the story where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, this miracle was causing the, the Jewish people to literally go viral in terms of Jesus' popularity. They wanted to make him king. And this threatened the Jewish mom bosses. It put them into a panic. And they thought, we're going to lose everything. We're going to lose our position of power. We're going to lose our enterprise. We've got to do something. So they hurriedly got the Supreme Court together, and they were arguing amongst themselves. And Caiaphas, the high priest, ended up prophesying. Now, this wasn't his intent, but he said, gentlemen, it would be good for one man to die for the nation of Israel. Now, he wasn't being philosophical. He wasn't being nice. Here's what he was saying. We need this guy dead. It would be good if Jesus was killed. Otherwise, the Romans are going to come down on Israel, and they're going to take away everything. You see, they'd already made up their mind. 
The verdict was in. They just needed to figure out how to get him dead, how to drum up charges against him that would allow that to happen. And so, let me take you back to last week where we looked at the arrest of Jesus. And I want to point out just how hard-hearted these guys are, or guys were, okay? They were amazingly hard-hearted towards Jesus. They were the leaders and the teachers of Israel. And the leaders and teachers of Israel would know this, that if God wanted to validate one of his prophets, if God wanted to say, this leader is from me, he would do that by allowing miracles to testify to the veracity of that prophet. Miracles were the language that they needed to prove that this was from God. And no other leader, no other prophet in the history of Israel came close to the number of miracles that were consistently being done through our Lord Jesus. You see, these leaders knew that the language that God would speak into them was through miracles. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, Jews look for a sign, but the Greeks are convinced by wisdom. So these men understood Jesus was a worker of miracles. That's what they say in John chapter 11 in the convening. This is what makes it so preposterous. They know this is from God. And they're saying, we know him to be a worker of miracles. They couldn't deny that. He just raised Lazarus from the dead in the latest episode. But they wanted him dead anyway. And if that wasn't enough proof, there's two more things that happen at the arrest of Jesus that are just flat out miracles. The first one, John describes that when the detachment of Roman soldiers, this is a group of 600 of the most battle-ready, hardened men on the planet. They send 600 of these guys into the garden to arrest Jesus with this throng of other kind of leaders and scribes and Pharisees are kind of in pursuit. And when they get to the garden, they say, where's the man that we're looking for? And Jesus says, I am he. And when he says the words, I am he, John records that they all fell flat on the ground. Boom. Almost a thousand people fall flat on their back. What's going on there is a demonstration of his supernatural power. And what he's making is a statement. No one's taking him away against his own will. No one's coming in here and taking him away against his own volition. Instead, he was going of his own accord. And then a second miracle happens. He ends up healing Malchus's ear. You see, Peter, who was with Jesus at the time, he sees all 600 soldiers fall flat on the ground when Jesus says, I am he. He goes, all right, game on, we can do this. So he pulls out his sword. He goes all William Wallace Braveheart on the guy nearest him, Malchus. He swings at his head, he misses and cuts off his ear. And so Jesus rebukes Peter and says, put away your sword. And then he touches Malchus's ear and he restores his ear and heals it right in the presence of everybody. Two more miracles. Are you getting the picture? Are you seeing what's happening here? God in the flesh was giving them every opportunity. He was using the language that they would know that this indeed was from God, and they were filled with bloodlust. They just wanted him dead. How about you? When we hear about these Jewish leaders and their blindness, it's easy to shake our heads and go, man, these guys didn't get it. They were so blind spiritually. But I've found that it's a good habit to get into, that when we see the foibles of others, when we see their shortcomings and failures, is to wrestle in with ourselves and to look within. You see, we all have sin. We all have self-centeredness. We all have a tendency for self-preservation. And so just invite yourself in these moments 
to say, God, is there something you're so blatantly trying to show me that I just keep missing? Perhaps you've been ignoring God's patient and loving and consistent voice trying to show you that there's a moral area in your life where you aren't getting victory. You need help. And he's asking you to take that bold and courageous step to be open to get the help that you need. All right. Perhaps you've resisted uh, with him leading you and causing and, and just prompting you to reach out to mend that broken relationship. To offer forgiveness so that there can be unity with one another. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you've not crossed the line of faith and, and you know God has shown you that he is who he said he is and that you just need to cross that line of faith, but there's something that's keeping you back. I don't know what it is, but there's something in the human heart that wants to resist God. It's in all of us. So fight against it. Don't be hard-hearted like the Pharisees, but instead be humble and open to what God might want to show you. Well, as we continue in our story, it's important that we understand the nuances of the role of high priest. We hear that we don't have a high priest in the church, and so we may not fully understand. So let me describe the role of the high priest. He was the highest religious leader in the nation of Israel, and he would oversee the various uh, functions of the temple, and especially the constant sacrificial offerings. And the most important job that this individual had was that once a year, uh, on the Jewish, the most sacred of Jewish ceremonies, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would go into the most holy place in the temple behind the veil. And then he would bring with him the blood of a sacrificial lamb, and he would sprinkle that blood on the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat, which was a representation of the throne room of God, the very presence of God, that he would make atonement or the covering and the satisfaction of God's wrath for the sins of all of God's people. This was his most important job. Can you see how important this role of high priest was? And Annas had taken this sacred function and totally corrupted it for his own personal gain and power. He turned it into a racketeering enterprise, actually, and a money-making scheme that made him very wealthy and powerful. Here's how he did it. Uh, first, a couple of ways is whenever you would come to the temple, you could never come to the temple to uh, God empty-handed. You either brought money or you brought one of the animals as prescribed by the law to offer as a sacrifice to God. And so the first way that uh, Annas turned this into a money-making scheme is you would be bringing money, you'd be bringing Roman currency. And Roman currency was unholy for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was Roman. Secondarily, the currency had... Uh, a stamp, an image of the emperor on it who claimed to be God. And so it was idolatry. And so Roman money was not allowed into the temple. And so what would happen then is they would have money changing tables where you would bring your Roman denarii and they would give you back temple currency. Well, the currency exchange rate was so far in the favor of the temple that it was actually stealing from the people and it was a sin before God. Another way that he made a lot of money is if you would bring your animal, it first had to be inspected by a temple official. And if it was found with any blemish, it would be rejected as not worthy for being sacrificed. You had to bring God your best. And of course, the majority of animals were rejected. And then they would bring out the temple animal that they would give you instead, and you would have to pay money for it. 
Now, you can't carry around two sheep, so they were our lambs, so they would take your lamb, and inevitably they would sell that lamb later. Can you just see how corrupt this is? This is, this, this is worship of God. And they had turned it into this very, very corrupt thing. And this is why Jesus, on two separate occasions, went into the temple with whips, and he was driving out these racketeering uh, people that were stealing God's people's money. And he said, you turn my father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. And so we're getting the picture of just who these guys are. But here's the irony to me. This is really amazing. They were the high priests to Jesus. Jesus is God. These guys existed for him. They worked for Jesus, and they didn't even recognize him. Talk about a bad episode of Undercover Boss. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? And so now they go to the unjust and illegal trial, and we'll pick that up in verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. All right. Let's dive in and see just how illegal and corrupt this trial really was. First, you need to know that the rules of Jewish jurisprudence were just as rigorous as ours are today. In fact, much of our system is, is built upon what they established. So in the trial of Jesus, there were no fewer than nine grossly negligent, blatant violations. And here's just a couple of them. The first one is they bribed the witness or they bribed Judas, rather, to actually turn him in. They were so afraid of the people uh, that they had to do this under the cover of night, and they got one of Jesus' insiders to betray him for money. Right? And so they're trying to work up this kind of scheme behind the scenes. Next, when they hurriedly brought the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, together in the middle of the night, they're forming an illegal gathering of the court. It was illegal for two reasons. One, all of their court proceedings were to be done in public. And they did this so that the court would have accountability to the people. It was mandated to be done in public. This was done behind closed doors. Secondarily, it was never to be done at night. It was only to be done during the daytime hours. And so they're violating those parts of their jurisprudence. All right. And so in verse 19, uh, we see Annas questioning Jesus. Right? That's not his job. That's not the role of the, of the high priest. That's not the role of the court. What he should be doing is listening. What he should be doing is sitting in judgment. What should be happening is a lawyer should be coming, bringing charges in a case against the accused. But we find Annas taking on the role of prosecutor, and then he violates another one of their laws, and that he requires Jesus to speak. In Jewish law, you were not allowed to testify against yourself, let alone being demanded that you testify against yourself. If you testified against yourself, they would throw it out. 
Every fact was to be corroborated by two or three witnesses. You see, they had all these rules because they would rather allow a guilty person to go free than to condemn a not guilty person. And so they had unbelievable checks and balances in place. And so you see how just these leaders are just bloodthirsty for Jesus. And they're violating everything that they know to be true. And that's why I love Jesus' answer so much. When we read it, it's hard to get the nuances and the connotation of what his response is really saying. But I want to kind of take a shot at, at, at saying it in the way that those who heard him say it, what they would have heard him say. So this is what it would sound like to them. Annas, my actions were not behind closed doors like this kangaroo court you've got going on here. I spoke openly for all the world to hear. So why are you violating our laws by questioning me and asking me to testify against myself when you should be ensuring that my rights are being upheld? And where are your witnesses? Why not even now go out and grab a few people who heard me speak? Surely they can testify to my innocence. And so the official hauls off and slaps Jesus. Jesus' response is the ultimate rebuke. It's strength in the face of gross injustice. And I just love it. This part of the trial was supposed to be an arraignment where charges were documented and made official. But Annas failed in this and totally flustered, flustered, totally exposed. He just ships him off to Caiaphas with no charges in hand because he couldn't make anything stick against Jesus. And if you harmonize the Gospels of the part two and part three of the trial of Jesus, um, it, it, the, the violations continue on and on and on. You see, in capital cases where they're asking for the death penalty, they could never be done the day before a feast. Well, Passover was the next morning. And the reason they couldn't be done the day before a feast is before a death penalty was issued, they had to fast and pray all 71 members of the Sanhedrin for 24 hours before they could render a verdict. If all 71 said they're guilty, it was thrown out. They assumed that there was corruption going on. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable just how far they were willing to go to get rid of this man. They knew the verdict that they had in mind. They knew the verdict that they needed to have happened. If it didn't happen, they were about to lose everything, and they wanted this guy dead once and for all. Again, when I asked Zach, the head of our teach team, the heart of this series, he said, is, to ask the question, what about the character of Jesus and his responses to these various events leading up to his crucifixion, what in his character makes us want to follow him? I'm just so glad I got to talk on this passage this morning because there's just so much here that just causes my heart to swell with passion and with excitement, for, with awe and respect for our Lord Jesus Christ. The first one is if you need proof that Jesus is who he said he is, this is perhaps one of the best things in all of scripture. Here's the reason why. These guys were the brightest, smartest, most educated people in all of Israel. And for three years, they were just filled with bloodlust. They had this motive to find one scant 
shred of evidence, one little iota, one little piece of evidence that they could malign the character of this person and catch him in a sin and catch him in doing something wrong. And for three years, they couldn't find anything. He was examined in the most unique of circumstances you could possibly imagine, and he was found to be blameless. They couldn't find anything against him. He is who he said he was, Emmanuel, God with us, the perfect, sinless, perfectly holy Lamb of God. Secondarily, I love Jesus' strength in the face of this horrendous injustice. He wasn't standing there because they arrested him. He was standing there of his own choice. You see, he had earlier already resolved, three years earlier, as he spent 40 days and nights in the desert, and he was being tempted firsthand by Satan. He already resolved that he was going to do God's will. Just weeks earlier, it says in Luke that Jesus turned towards Jerusalem and set his jaw like flint. Sounds like a Clint Eastwood movie to me, man. It's awesome. And he said he's going up to Jerusalem that he might die for the sins of mankind. Just hours earlier, he resolved in his heart as he was wrestling with God in prayer, with the Father in prayer, and he just humbled his heart and said, I agree, there is no other way. And he resolved in his heart to come to this hour that he might give himself for the sins of us all. You see, they had a Roman army. Jesus had 12 legions of angels. That's 84,000 angels. Now, one angel is all he needed. In Isaiah 25, when they went up against the Assyrian army of 182,000, I believe, battle-hardened soldiers, uh, toughest guys on the planet, one angel wiped out an entire army in one night. Can you imagine what 84,000 angels would have done? One word from Jesus, and they would all came. Now, he was there of his own volition. God was bringing all of history to this crescendo in time, to this moment in time. John tells us that Jesus said, this is Satan's hour. The worst that evil men could bring against Jesus and the worst of the fury of all of hell's dominions were arrayed against Jesus and they could not defeat him. And it was coming to this moment in time. But how? How would Jesus defeat the powers of hell and the evilness of mankind? He would do it as the high priest of offering the lamb's blood for the atonement of sins for all of us. You see, the Old Testament system that the high priest did really didn't take away the sins of people. It was just pointing to the coming of Christ. It was a ceremony rich with symbolism, pointing to what God's plan was all along that he would make atonement for our sins. Now, I've been using that word, and it's, been a, it's a big word, and let me just describe what it says. Atonement is the sacrifice of Christ as our substitute, taking our place, and that his perfect sacrifice fully satisfies God's wrath in its entirety towards sin, so that God now moves from needing to give us judgment to actually becoming favorable towards us, that we become acceptable to God, forgiven of all of our sins and totally blameless in his sight. You see, Jesus is doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. He took our place. He endured all of hell's fury and the worst of men's evil actions out of love for you, for me. It's the only way. 
In Hebrews it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. He had you in mind. He had me in mind as he went through all of this. This kind of strength in the face of injustice, this exemplary dignity, majesty, and humility, this righteousness, this self-control in the face of non, this nonviolent response in the face of this utter injustice, if you understand it, it humbles the soul. Jesus defeated for all time the thing we couldn't defeat, sin, death, and the power of hell. And like the great hymn proclaims, this love so amazing and so divine demands our life, our soul, our all. Let's pray.